Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The leaders of the U.S. and North Korea are about to meet in Singapore. It sounds like from his comments after the G summit, um, G7 summit, President Trump puts a lot of stock in first impressions. I, I think within the first minute, I'll know. Just my touch, my feel. That's what, that's what I do. Uh, how long will it take to figure out whether or not they're serious? I said, maybe in the first minute. You know, the way they say that you know if you're going to like somebody in the first five seconds. You ever hear that one? Well, I think that uh, very quickly I'll know whether or not something good is going to happen. I also think I'll know whether or not it will happen fast. May not. But I think I'll know pretty quickly whether or not, in my opinion, something positive will happen. With me is Bruce Cummings, professor of history at the University of Chicago. He's the author of The Korean War, A History, amongst other books. Nice to talk with you again, Bruce. Nice to be here, Joel. Well, here's the big summit, and we've got Donald Trump going head-to-head with the leader of North Korea here. They're going to meet together in private with their interpreters for an extended period. Uh, I mean, Jeffrey Goldberg had a piece in The Atlantic today called the president perhaps the most glandular president in American history, <laughs> that he really is uh, kind of doing this off the cuff and with his gut instincts there, as the quote indicates. Well, I think probably Kim Jong-un is pretty glandular, too. And what, what if he sizes Trump up in the first minute and doesn't like him? Uh, it's always uh, from Trump's point of view. Uh, I, I find uh, <clears throat> predicting what's going to happen at the summit very difficult, not because of Kim Jong-un, who, who came with an entire entourage of high officials to Singapore and who will be very well briefed and prepared, as, as North Koreans are, always are in diplomatic uh, discussions. I have no idea what Trump is going to do because he's so mercurial. Uh, you can't, uh, I don't know anybody who, in, including himself, who can predict his behavior. And I, I think almost any uh, of our diplomats would recommend against a two-hour meeting with just the two of them and the interpreters. A, because you don't know really what happened. You're dependent on uh, the two of them. And B, uh, maybe there's no record of it. Uh, and Trump can come out and say anything he wants about it. Uh, but I'm fairly optimistic because Trump uh, wants a good outcome, uh, something like a peace treaty to end the Korean War. And he has one great advantage. He's completely unbeholden to the foreign policy establishment in Washington, which over the last 25 years, whether it's Democrats or Republicans, have had a very long laundry list of what the North Koreans have to do before we recognize them. So it could be that this is... a uh, a silver lining to uh, the cloud of Trump's diplomacy. I wanted to ask a question about China and what China is getting out of this. It seems like um, China and North Korea are getting closer. They've had two meetings between their respective head of states recently, and President Xi is going to come to North Korea uh, subsequent to this meeting with Donald Trump. And even if things go badly with Trump, it seems like Kim's won with North Korea, with China. I think that's a very good point. I think President Xi has been very deft in the way that he has uh, gotten himself involved in this. Uh, relations with North Korea were at their very worst a year or so ago and had been for some time. Uh, the Chinese would send high officials to Pyongyang, you know, please don't test another missile. And then the guy would go home and they'd test the missile three days later. That happened several times. North Korea was just uh, standing up and saying no to China. And now, uh, as you said, they've met twice. The Chinese provided uh, 
an Air China 747 for uh, Kim to go to Singapore. Uh, and it's a complete contrast with Japan, where Prime Minister Abe has been clamoring uh, to become involved. He showed up on Friday at the White House, uh, almost unexpected. Uh, and he's uh, met with Trump several times trying to be his good buddy, but he's on the outside looking in. What if you're trying to end the Korean War? And that's the initial goal of the Trump administration. China's a signatory to that deal. Uh, if China signs off on ending the Korean War with you, then it is going to expect some kind of uh, subsequent loosening of behavior. They can, they can expect anything they want. Well, I, I mean, I think uh, this is something that could have happened at any point in the last uh, 60 years or so. There was supposed to be a negotiation of, on a peace treaty at the Geneva Conference in 1954, and it never happened. Uh, I think this is one of the easier things to do, uh, but it carries a particular uh, catch that the U.S. might not like, and that is you really can't make a peace treaty with a country that you have no diplomatic relations with. So it probably presupposes that we would recognize North Korea for the first time in 70 years. Their anniversary is in September, uh, 70th found, year of the founding of the regime. I think China will be very happy uh, to uh, assist the United States and North Korea and, and South Korea in bringing an end to the Korean War. I think they'll uh, feel that they benefit from it. And guess what? It, it leaves uh, a more questionable rationale for why the U.S. should continue to be involved in, in Korea with 28,000 troops and so on. What would a partial e removal of troops mean to the various parties? Well, this is one of the most vexed questions uh, about this summit and, and the negotiations. Uh, Kim Jong-un's father, Kim Jong-il, told the South Korean leader uh, at their first summit that he would not object to the continued stationing of American troops even after unification. Uh, and the reason for that is, is that uh, Korea is surrounded by Russia, China, and Japan, and they always worry uh, about um, – the old metaphor was a shrimp among whales. I mean, you don't really want to call either Korea a shrimp. Uh, they're certainly not. But the fact is the U.S. is across the Pacific. Uh, it's not a near neighbor. And if the Koreans can get the U.S. to stay, then the U.S. can uh, balance off uh, these great powers around Korea. That hasn't – I mean, it, it's a, it was in the media – uh, back in 2000, but people have forgotten it. So you have the paradox that Trump may want to withdraw troops from Korea, but Kim Jong-un Kim Jong doesn't want him to do it. Uh, and when it comes to aid, and North Korea is going to expect aid for any concessions, it seems, and the Trump administration thinks that it should be China and South Korea that give the aid. It, it does. It, he doesn't. President Trump does not seem to want to give aid to North Korea. Yeah, he said the people in their neighborhood uh, should give the aid to North Korea. But uh, when you look at the costs of of the full panoply of things that we use to contain and deter North Korea, not just our troops in South Korea, fifty thousand in Japan the 3rd Marine Division in Okinawa, basically dedicated to uh, a Korean War if it were to happen again. We spend tens of billions of dollars a year uh, for that commitment. And for the U.S. to uh, provide a billion or two of aid uh, to North Korea in return for getting rid of their nukes and, and really lessening the tension on the peninsula would be chump change. And I, I frankly think that Trump uh, is just bargaining when he says things like that. He'd like to get 
South Korea and China to ante up more uh, help for North Korea. Uh, but I imagine if we do get a denuclearization deal, there will be quite a bit of American aid in return. I'm talking with Bruce Cummings, professor of history at the University of Chicago, about the summit meeting between Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un. We're going to be talking about reconstruction in Puerto Rico in just a few minutes. Stay with us. Uh, I wanted to say something about the U.S. in the Pacific here. Uh, a lot of people are talking about President Trump dismantling the alliances in the G7, but it sounds almost like he's going to do the same thing in the Pacific with U.S. power if he gets his way. He would like to dismantle our influence there. Well, it, it's amazing to me. He's the first president who doesn't seem to understand that when we have 50,000 troops on Japanese territory, we have a tremendous leverage over what Japan does in the way of remilitarization or something like that. Uh, the fact that Japan has a small army and and no political clout on a world scale is because we've had thousands of troops on their soil. And that's true of Germany and, and uh, Spain and Italy and the UK where we still maintain thousands of troops and, and bases. This gives us leverage over these folks. And Donald Trump doesn't seem to understand that. And I, I'm sure that... Uh, General Mattis and others are telling him that. But it, it would be uh, absolutely shocking if, if he were to withdraw, tr withdraw troops from South Korea or, or Japan. Uh, the South Koreans and the Japanese would, would immediately get nosebleed and it, it would be a huge crisis. Donald Trump is operating on a, a principle, it seems, of um, you know, no friends, no enemies. We don't have alliances. Uh, we don't have uh, people we hate. Uh, in, in this piece that um, Jeffrey Goldberg did in The Atlantic today, he uh, got a quote from a Trump official who said, uh, sometimes we have to explain to the president that countries that have worked with us together in the past expect a level of loyalty from us, but he doesn't believe that this should factor into the equation. I think uh, Trump treats uh, our allied leaders the way he did uh, other businessmen in making real estate deals. Uh, he will uh, slap you in the face on Tuesday and then give you a big bear hug on Wednesday and wonder why you're confused. Uh, he runs a White House that's in total chaos uh, where one person is up one day and the, uh, the enemy of that person is up the next. And he treats cabinet officials like this. I mean, Jeff Sessions, uh, has, he's just been abusing uh, uh, Jeff Sessions for uh, months now. Uh, and he'll say something nasty about a cabinet official one day and then praise him the next. So I, I don't know if this is a bargaining position or his short attention span, uh, but um, we've never had a president remotely like this fellow. Well, we'll see what happens with the summit tonight. It begins around 9 o'clock our time, and we'll know some things tomorrow that we didn't know today. Bruce Cummings, thanks a lot for joining us again, and we'll talk to you again soon. Thanks, Jerome. Bruce Cummings is professor of history at the University of Chicago. He's the author of The Korean War, A History, amongst other books, and we'll talk to him soon about the outcome of the summit in North Korea. Coming up after the break, we will chat about uh, Puerto Rico and reconstruction and the number of dead in Puerto Rico. Rico. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ.
This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. We're going to start a series of conversations on Monday about Puerto Rico. And today we'll start with Richard Santiago. He's an artist in residence at the Puerto Rican Cultural Center. He's co-chair of the Arts and Culture Committee with the Puerto Rican Agenda. And he was um, displaced as a result of Hurricane Maria. He was on the faculty at the School of Art and Design in San Juan. And I talked with him in the fall when he was first displaced. And it's good to see you again, Richard. It's really good to be here, Jerome. I really thank you for the opportunity to keep this conversation on the table because for us it's very necessary. I think everyone noticed the other week when uh, the Harvard study came out and it estimated that maybe 4,645 people died in Puerto Rico, and that was their midpoint estimate. Uh, Nobody probably believed in the 64 number anyway. Um, You've been working on a project uh, really about deaths in Puerto Rico. Tell us what's been going on. Well, there's many things that's been going on. Um, Let's start with the project, with the with the numbers that the Harvard study did, uh, like you said, it was a midpoint study that actually the government stopped giving information to them around December 31st. So this estimate is from that study until December 31st. That just lets you know right there that the estimate will most probably or most definitely be moving up a lot more. Now, even just that number up to that point, uh, it's pretty much the biggest catastrophe for any U.S. citizen, you know, part of the United States, you know. You combine Katrina catastrophe, you combine uh, September 11 catastrophe, all those deaths, and they don't amount to the kind of deaths that we've, you know, they they just reported. Now, the government would rather go into a lawsuit uh, against CNN and uh, Center for uh, Investigative Journalism not to reveal the amount of deaths, the real amount of deaths that they knew. Uh, they would rather go into the lawsuit and prevent Harvard from any more information for that study instead of just releasing. So that just lets you know that there's a lot of ineptness, there's a lot of uh, wicked things going around, and all this really mounts up to... uh, you know the treatment that the Puerto Rican people are receiving. There's there's 911 people that were who were cremated by the uh, government of Puerto Rico. This news came out a month after the hurricane, and they said that they went through the right procedure of certifying and identifying these bodies, but they don't want to, these people remain anonymous up to this point. Explain more about that. What? Are, yeah. Who are these 911 people? What did know. they, uh, how did they yeah. well, get okay. cremated like this by the government with no... It was mass anything? cremation. Mass cremation, uh, well, I would say 20-some days after the hurricane, I would say for some families who were probably really poor families from the from inside the country uh it was a a way for them to not have to bury their dead loved one in the backyard you know so the government would probably just take them away or just bodies who were found found on rivers or on at the sea or in the mountain you know wherever and they were brought to funeral homes and then there were these funeral homes were ordered by the government of Puerto Rico just to cremate them because they couldn't hold the amount now the the thing about this is they they remain anonymous but the government of Puerto Rico doesn't want to you know reveal the names of these people so what we are assuming i, I did yeah i started a project regarding those 911 which is obviously a very symbolic number throughout history you know especially in this country and here we have a new 911 for me these 911 people are kind of like the disappeared that would be from Argentina or the Ayotzinapa uh, student, students you know 
I'm very sure that uh, the government just lost the lawsuit. So they have now, right now, three days or two days to reveal the information. I'm pretty sure they don't have the 911 uh, num uh, names. And I'm pretty sure they're not going to be re releasing any stuff that they don't have. This past Friday, news came out, like I was telling you before, about four freight wagons that were f right outside of the forensics department in Puerto Rico uh, of 800 cadavers in these four freight wagons that nobody knew about. And they are also nameless. They're not identified. The, the, the uh, forensics people say that they had to take them because the uh, medical exams did not get certified by the doctor. So it's their duty to take them, but they don't want to say that they're victims of the hurricane. So, I mean, this is going to be a lot more deaths coming up. And so this 500, uh, I mean, 4,000, um, uh, six, uh, how many, 4,645, number i'm holding a little back on using that symbol at this point because i know it's going to raise i know it's going to be a lot bigger the 911 cremated they 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 did say about that so that number i'm, I'm doing a project regarding that uh to manifest yeah. their lives uh, explain what that project is i was starting there and we're well, gonna first we're gonna uh, find as, out as, you're an artist you are gonna yeah, make this project that that's the thing first the first thing is i couldn't think of painting or doing anything that had to be related with art. I mean, as an artist, at first, I'm a human being, so my main focus was uh, relief efforts for my peers, for my friend artists, for the, the University of Arts in Puerto Rico, for family members, friends. That was the main thing, but I, here in Chicago, when I was displaced here, I was offered an opportunity to have a show in May, and I couldn't even think of even putting a drop of paint on a canvas, you know? And then this news came out of, of these cremated bodies and uh, and it really bothered me. You know, I was very angry. I was very touched. I was very sad. And I decided that then I was going to do a conceptual uh, installation regarding these anonymous people, kind of like a last-ditch effort, you know, to to bring, uh, heal these, this wound. And, uh, and what I'm doing is I'm working on monotypes, which is a form of graphic art, which is the difference between that type of art and other graphic arts is that it's not mass production. It's only one piece, one specific, uh, sp uh, peculiar one piece, which is very close to the idea of a fingerprint, which is also a type of monotype. So I'm doing representations and manifestations of these people using collaboration from other people. For example, if you would like to honor your grandmother or your grandfather and, and you tell me, well, I, I, I just need the name, the uh, age when they pass, and uh, and the birthplace. So through that, you're lending me some identity for this anonymous people to have an identity at least. So it's an honor, you know. Explain where the exhibition will be and where it will okay. go. Okay, it, it was here in Chicago. It started in a small space called the Humble Park Boathouse Gallery. It was in May 5th it opened. It closed in May 25th. But we're taking this show now. Uh, Rutgers University is inviting me to talk about this exhibition. So we're, we're uh, talking about the idea of bringing the show, um, the installation. We're going to take it to Ohio, and we're going to take it to Florida. And... Um, and then we're going to finish in Puerto Rico. I already talked to the mayor of San Juan. She wants to have the show in one of the museums in San Juan. If it's ready, the museum up until then, then we're going to have the show there with the 911 monotypes representing these people. Now, the process of putting up the monotypes is also very ritualistic. 
and it's very healing for me also because I have triggers. I have I'm going through a process of traumatic situations also because of my displacement, because of losing everything, because of the hurricane. So it's also been a healing process for me. Uh, so it'll end up the year after the news came out, which is October 27th, in San Juan is going to open up. Richard Santiago is artist-in-residence at the Puerto Rico Cultural Center. He's co-chair of the Arts and Culture Committee with the Puerto Rican Agenda. He and his family were displaced as a result of Hurricane Maria. He worked in San Juan at the School of Art and Design there. Thanks a lot for joining us again, updating us on your thoughts and your project, and good luck with it. Thank you. I really appreciate it. And uh, everybody, please keep us in mind. Don't forget us. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about Guatemala and the Fuego Volcano. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The eruption of the Fuego volcano in Guatemala a week ago killed at least 110 people. 200 are still missing. There are thousands of displaced people and lots of questions about the performance of the authorities. With me is Nick Wirtz. He's an independent journalist living in Guatemala. He's been writing about the Fuego eruption for the New York Times. Thanks for joining us, Nick Wirtz. Uh, Good morning. Thanks for having me. I wanted to ask about the things I've been reading about the authorities, and there's been a lot of questions that people should have been warned earlier, and um, a lot of kvetching about that. Is how how does that sound from your perspective, from somebody who's who's there all the time? Uh, I guess for a bit of background, uh, I've actually lived somewhere around 20 miles away from the the volcano for the last decade. You go to sleep and you hear it. It's kind of background noise. So this is pretty much a, a once every 25 year eruption. Last eruption with this kind of death toll was something like 1902. So a lot of the, the criticism has essentially been uh, why didn't the people get out sooner and comparing uh, a golf resort to under, under-resourced people who live uh, on the volcano. And I, again, I think um, it, it's a difficult criticism and connection to make because uh, the golf course has protocols and the families wouldn't necessarily have decided to, to get out as soon as possible purely because they've lived uh, underneath that volcano for all their lives. On the other hand, I think that there's certainly criticism to make on what was essentially a poor response. Uh, the protocols are essentially all over the place. There has been issues and, and there's been changes made to, to CONRED, which is the, the National Disaster Agency, since the previous natural disaster, which was probably the El Cambrai mudside in 2015. And it does seem as if the responses are pretty much all over the place. And probably the biggest criticism is that the inter-ministerial communication is essentially zero. They do do technical committees and working committees, but essentially these different ministries are, are fiefdoms, which fits into kind of some sort of the medieval Guatemalan political hierarchy. And I think probably the biggest criticism and probably the biggest area of where uh, things could change is definitely amongst that ability for for different teams and different ministers to be able to work together better. 
You know, another thing I've been reading is a criticism of the camps where some of the displaced people have moved to. There's, I understand, you know, about 4,000 in these shelters. And I saw the woman complaining that they weren't able to leave the shelter except at certain times and they have to get back by certain times. And the woman said, we came here seeking help and wound up in a prison. Is, is there a lot of talk about that? Uh, I think possibly the first uh, uh, point to make about that is that really uh, nobody knows how many people are in the shelters. Different government agencies have something in, in the region of either 3,500 to 5,000. So it's quite impressive that you've already managed to lose somewhere in the region of 1,500 people. A second point from that is that nobody knows how many people were in any of these communities in the first place. There is a famous photograph of San Miguel Los Lotes, which pretty much uh, is, is the community that suffered the largest uh, death toll. There's photos of it uh, prior to the eruption of Welcome to San Miguel Los Lotes, uh, population 8,500. Um, quite clearly there's neither the death toll or the amount of people in, in all of the shelters to, to cover that 8,500. There's been various attempts to work out how many houses there were in these communities. I think the, the government finally agreed yesterday there was almost 200 houses in, in Samuel. But the first 72 hours of a national disaster actually is fairly well organized in Guatemala. They've uh, had somewhere in the region of 19 natural disasters in the past 17 years. Generally, that kind of chaotic period is reasonably well organized under the circumstances. I haven't had people complain that uh, that the uh, shelters are like uh, pr- uh, prisons, uh, but there are certainly rules and regulations to try and keep as many people in and only family members uh, allowed to visit, uh, things like that. It, it, also depends on there's a lot of different agencies taking over a lot of different uh, shelters so in in some shelters uh, access may be more open journalists are allowed in aid workers and activists are allowed in Uh, in other shelters perhaps organized by a different agency access will be extremely limited so I can understand that there's a lot of confusion and a lot of different experiences at different shelters. And obviously that's a problem going forward. Why isn't there a uniform response to all these uh, shelters? Very interesting. Um, I also wanted to ask a question about some of the stories of the people who survived and and lost loved ones. Uh, I was reading a story in The Guardian about a woman who lost 50 of her closest relatives, uh, including her three children, her mother, her grandson, brothers, sisters, nephews, children and nephews. Uh, she, She lost everybody. I mentioned there are spots where people just got buried there. Yeah. Certainly there's been uh, survivors that we've talked to that have lost upwards of uh, 10, 15, 20, 25 members of the same family. I I believe there was a a family that had had gone to San Miguel Los Lotes to celebrate the 65th birthday of the grandmother. And obviously they were in the same house, they were celebrating that birthday and didn't get out in time. So it was uh, potentially the same ideas in the, in the Guardian report, but the same family had, had uh, been planning this birthday for, for months and they'd all managed to get there on the same day. And unfortunately uh, the volcano erupted and they did, didn't manage to get out. And unfortunately in a pyroclastic uh, flow, which is emitting gases, which uh, the firefighters that we talked to said it's 
uh, essentially the first experience they've ever had of dealing with the pyroclastic flow uh, and its and the gases that it releases. Some of these people did not stand uh, a chance uh, battling against a flow going potentially hundreds of miles an hour with toxic gases and throwing huge rocks out uh, and various other uh, debris that would have made uh, attempting to escape it all more difficult. I wanted to ask um, also about how people did in community here. It seems like every time there's a natural disaster, the ability for human beings to get up and organize themselves and put together um, a sense of uh, continuity and, and hope is, is something to behold. Have you seen that there in Guatemala? Uh, absolutely. There's been somewhere in the region of 19 major natural disasters in the last 17 years in Guatemala. It's kind of a a uh, difficult place to live in or um, you you're quite aware of the risk of a natural disaster uh given that uh we're in the ring of fire there's somewhere between over 35 33 volcanoes uh we're in the middle of three tectonic plates so there's generally something happening on a daily basis but everyone that we saw uh, essentially after after they'd clean cleaned themselves up where the first thoughts are to to go and help the neighbor my uh, wife and um, who's a teacher her school was closed for the week so she uh, volunteered and or helped organize um, supplies coming out of uh, Antigua I think we're about 15 miles uh, 12 miles away from San Juan de Tenango and you just pitch in you just jump in you you share what you have you, you give what you're capable of doing uh, and, and you get on with it. it. It's incredible to see community leaders rise up from, from this. Uh, it's impressive to see that spirit of community and, and spirit of solidarity. And I think if there's, there's anything positive going forward from, from this eruption, it, it's, it's the fact that people can rely on each other. It's a unifying uh, event. It's a, obviously an incredibly sad, sad and uh, tragic event in terms of uh, death toll, but it crosses um, racial, ideological, any kind of uh, border that's, u- that's usually in front of these people. Uh, socioeconomic groups as well. It's, it's literally everyone pitches in what they can uh, and works together. And it's, um, it, it's fascinating to see and it's fantastic to see. Nick Wirtz is an independent journalist living in Guatemala. He's been writing about the Fuego volcano eruption for the New York Times and other places. Thanks a lot for joining us, Nick, and good luck in the future there. Thank you for having me, and, uh, and, and thanks for I should pass on all messages of good news. Thank you. Tomorrow on Worldview, we'll continue our conversation about North Korea and talk about how President Trump and President Kim did in their two-hour meeting together. Hope you can join us tomorrow for Worldview. Worldview is produced by Julian Haida and Steve Bynum. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.